Welcome back, all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and we are in week number 18. As we begin this week, the northern tribes have been deported to Assyria, where they will be assimilated, and the southern kingdom is still remaining as we move into chapter 18 of 2 Kings. And so we'll cover 2 Kings 18 through 1 Chronicles chapter 9. The kings that we will be speaking about from this point forward will be the kings of the south. In chapter 18, Hezekiah becomes king. He, along with three other kings, Asa, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat, did right in the eyes of the Lord as David had done. And so Hezekiah gets rid of pagan practices and leads the people in the exclusive worship of the Lord. Now, in the 14th year of his reign, he came under the attack of Assyria. His first attempt to appease Assyria was to buy them off. But Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, was content with nothing more than Jerusalem's total destruction. And so the king of Assyria even taunted the regular citizens of Israel, saying that their king was impotent and and no god of any other nation was able to withstand mighty Assyria. So with all this taunting, chapter 19 of 2 Kings tells us that Hezekiah sought the counsel of the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 36 and 37 add to the story's details a bit, and when we get to that book, we'll talk about it. But Isaiah assures the king that God would intervene. Now, in the meantime, Sennacherib had left to go to confront the armies of Egypt, which were supposedly coming to help Israel. And Sennacherib, however, did not forget his intention to destroy Jerusalem, and so he sends the king a personal letter that he would be back. King Hezekiah knew nothing else to do except take the letter and lay it down in the presence of the Lord and ask for help. Wow. You know, what a picture here of a great example of going to the Lord as a first response instead of a last resort. The Lord answered Hezekiah's prayer through the prophet Isaiah. In one evening, the Lord's avenging angel annihilated the entire Assyrian army, some 185,000 men, leaving only Sennacherib and a few others to return back to Nineveh. And to the demise of Sennacherib, the last few verses of chapter 19 tell us that as he is worshiping his gods back in Nineveh, his two sons come in and assassinate him. Now in chapter 20, Hezekiah, we hear, becomes deathly ill. But God heard his fervent plea for a lengthening of his life and gave him 15 more years. His recovery gained international attention and a ruler of Babylon, which at that time was a vassal state of Assyria, came to congratulate Hezekiah on his recovery. And Hezekiah was flattered by such attention that he foolishly showed the entourage all the treasures of his kingdom. A display of pride on Hezekiah's part, no doubt. Because of what Hezekiah does, the descendants of those very Babylonians would someday return and loot Judah's treasures of all those things that Hezekiah had boasted about. This prophecy is fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, where Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the temple treasures back to Babylon, the same treasures that Belshazzar brought out in a sacrilegious feast in Daniel chapter 5. Now, in chapter 21, Hezekiah's son Manasseh becomes king, and he rules for a total of 55 years. The contrast here is that you couldn't have two more opposite people. Hezekiah was one of the good kings, but Manasseh was probably the worst king. He restored the pagan shrines taken down by his father, placing even some of those shrines within the temple precincts. He went so far as to practice human sacrifice, just as his father Ahaz had done. He led Israel into behavior that was worse than the pagan nations around them, even the Amorites. He even gives King Ahab of the northern kingdom a run for the title of the most wicked king. 
The Lord said that the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, would suffer that same fate as the kingdom of the north, for Judah's sins were every bit as great. According to Second Chronicles, at the end of Manasseh's life, he repents of his actions, but that does not stop the downward spiral of national judgment that was going to come through exile in Babylon. Ammon takes over after his father Manasseh dies. Ammon ruled for just two years, and his rule was a mere image of his father's. Conspirators took Ammon's life for fear that his rule might last as long as his father's. And then Josiah, Ammon's son, becomes the next king in chapter 22. And Josiah is considered the godliest of the Old Testament kings who descended from the line of David. Now, Josiah is only eight years old when he comes to power, ruling for 31 years, and at the age of 26, he initiates a temple restoration project, one that results in the discovery of the long-lost copy of the Pentateuch. Now, it's hard to imagine that a king would be unaware of such a significant portion of Scripture, especially when God had commanded, back in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, he commanded that each king must, quote, write for himself a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Now, did not the priest or even the Levites have copies of the law? Now, we got to remember that Manasseh wiped out almost every trace of true religion in Israel's 50-year period where he was king. Whatever copies of the sacred skulls survived during this time were probably hidden in caves, kind of like those near Coram in the Dead Sea. After rediscovering God's law, the king immediately requests help from one of God's prophets. But this time, it's a prophetess. Jeremiah had already begun his ministry, as well as Zephaniah, but they weren't in Jerusalem. So Huldah is called. Some say that she is an aunt of Jeremiah, by the way. And this isn't the first time that God spoke to the nation through a woman. Think of Miriam or Deborah or Isaiah's wife or Anna in the New Testament or the four daughters of Philip in the New Testament. So Huldah forms informs the king that though the nation would suffer divine wrath, Josiah himself would not live to see it happen. We move on to chapter 23, and Josiah decides to lead the people in a spiritual reformation. As a community, they swore to uphold God's covenant, a pledge that was followed by a wholesale destruction of all pagan worship items in and around Jerusalem. The high point of the event was the celebration of the Passover in a manner that was unprecedented since the days of the judges more than 500 years earlier. And even though Josiah was the nation's godliest king, the nation had defected from God so severely that God's judgment was irreversible. Josiah is killed as he goes out into battle to face the Egyptians, and his men bring his body back to Jerusalem. Now, between the date of Josiah's death, around 609 B.C., and the fall of Jerusalem, roughly 23 years later, four descendants of Josiah's of Josiah reign in rapid succession, three sons and a grandson. So the first son is Jehoaz. He held on for only three months. And then Pharaoh Necho of Egypt took him prisoner to Egypt and set his brother Jehoiakim on the throne to rule. Now, Jehoiakim was not well liked by the people as he taxed them heavily to pay tribute to the Egyptians. And to make matters worse, that while the people groaned under these burdens, Jehoiakim built himself a luxurious palace and then refused to pay the workers. You can actually read more about that later on in the book of Jeremiah. Now, also, according to Jeremiah, Jehoiakim was probably the most consistently wicked king of the south since Ahaz. He took a scroll of Jeremiah's sermons and calmly cut them into pieces 
and burn them. Anyway, we got to get back to Kings and, and save Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, from when we get to the book of Jeremiah. We move on to chapter 24 of 2 Kings, and we find out that Babylon is becoming a superpower. And they would secure their dominance with a decisive battle against Egypt. And it's during this time that Daniel and many of his Jews are taken to Babylon. Jehoiakim, while still ruling in Jerusalem, was now answerable to Babylon. And after three years under Babylon, Jehoiakim rebelled and would be taken off to Babylon. But he returned later on to die in Jerusalem, we're told. Now Jehoiakim's son, named Jeconiah, succeeded him on the throne, ruling for only three months. And during those three months, he surrendered to a second Babylonian invasion of 597. A large number of Israelites were deported to Babylon. This is the second deportation of three total deportations to Babylon. The first deportation was mentioned earlier when Daniel and his royal friends were taken into Babylon, and now roughly 12 years later, a second wave of Israelites are taken to Babylon as Jeconiah surrenders. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sets up Zedekiah, a third son of Josiah, to rule Israel on behalf of Babylon. This will be the last ruler for the kingdom of the south. Zedekiah also rebels under Babylonian rule, making a treaty with the Egyptian pharaoh. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Israel, but to punish her with utter finality. Zedekiah tried to escape, but was captured, has his eyes gouged out, and he's carted off to Babylon. The sad story of the northern kingdom's failure to conform to the Lord's covenant laws and responsibilities concludes with the violent destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. So in chapter 25, we read that the city of Jerusalem is demolished and then systematically looted of all its treasures. And the remaining upper classes of the people are carted off to Babylon. This is the third wave of prisoners taken off to Babylon. Only the peasants were left to work the soil and otherwise keep things intact for the benefit of Babylon. Though most of the captives were kept alive, some of them, especially political and religious leaders, were executed in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, the Babylonian policy was not to eradicate all life off the land, but only to interrupt its existing political, social, and religious structures so as to make it agreeable to Babylon. A new system of government would be installed in Israel, while much of Israel's population had been exported to Babylon, consisting of appointees who would be answerable to Babylon. So they set up what we might call a puppet government. A man named Gedaliah was the first of these so-called appointees, but he is assassinated by a some fellow Jews. Again, Jeremiah provides some more information on this event. Now, the closing verses of chapter 25 of 2 Kings give the reader a glimmer of hope that God is not done with the kingdom of the south. Even though they've gone into exile, there is still hope for a restoration. King Jehoiachin, who was taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar in the second wave of deportations, is released from prison. The reason being is that Nebuchadnezzar had ended his 40-plus rule over Babylon, and another king named Evil Morodach takes rule in Babylon. And Jehoiachin's rise to a position of favor in the eyes of Babylon was to the Jews a glimmer of hope that the line of David would once again be restored. By the way, did you catch that last statement, the line of David? This king was from the line of David. God preserved a descendant from the line of David. God was true to his promise of always having a descendant of David to sit on the throne. And this also means that the line of Christ is still intact because we have a living descendant of David. 
So this finishes the book of 2 Kings, and we move right into 1 Chronicles. And there are first things to keep in mind when reading through 1 and 2 Chronicles. First, as you're going to have a sense of deja vu when you read these two books. You think, I've already read this before. Well, you have. Think of it this way. 1 Chronicles is the cliff notes to 1 and 2 Samuel. 2 Chronicles are the cliff notes to 1 and 2 Kings. So 1 and 2 Chronicles retell the storyline that we've been discussing from King Saul up to the exile of the southern kingdom into Babylon. So if we put it into New Testament terms, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings together form what we might call one gospel story about Israel, while 1 and 2 Chronicles retell that same story, but they include additional details like the other synoptic gospels would do. Now, second thing to watch out for is because the same story is being told in 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles will tend to focus on the spiritual side of the story, whereas we have just read through all the historical details, sometimes painful, I know, from 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Third thing to watch out for, the two books of First and Second Chronicles were written after the exile of 70 years in Babylon, so as the people were returning back to the land. So tradition ascribes Ezra as the compilers of these books. Fourth, these two books are meant to be an encouragement to the nation of Israel and a warning, encouraging them with the truth that God is not through with them yet and a warning that future idolatry would be dealt with harshly. Fifth, these two books only the only emphasis of these two books is on the kings in the south, because it's the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that David was from, and that Christ was yet to come from. And so this kingdom was the one who would make it through the exile and return to the land. The other tribes that made up the northern kingdoms had already been assimilated into Assyria, later calling themselves Samaritans. The sixth thing you need to pay attention to is that the central message of these two books is wrapped up in and around the temple. Now it's time to get into 1 Chronicles, and this reading section is going to separate the men from the boys or the women from the girls. The first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles is all genealogies. That's right, you heard me, genealogies. It's the single largest section of genealogies in all the Bible. Now, as we start this section, let me encourage you, maybe give you some inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all Scripture is profitable. These genealogies serve a purpose because the chronicler devoted nine chapters out of 65 chapters to genealogies. Understand one important concept, though. These genealogies are not exhaustive. They are selective. So if you see a person missing, there's a reason for it. Or if you know that a certain... Um, a certain descendant had more than the listed amount of sons, then there's a reason for it. Because you see, the genealogy has value in that it's trying to teach us something rather than just recount thousands of years of descendants. So chapter 1 is the genealogy from Adam to Jacob. So this would be the entire 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. By the way, a good study Bible will have some good subheadings so you know whose family you're reading genealogies from. The first 28 verses traces Adam to Abraham, and from verse 29 through 37 is Abraham's descendants through Ishmael, through Keturah, and of course, the promised line through Sarah, who would give birth to Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau's genealogy finishes out chapter 1, and Jacob's genealogy begins chapter 2. 
So at the beginning of chapter 2, the chronicler states, these are the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel. And then from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 8, he lists genealogies of those sons of Jacob. Now the sons of Jacob we know are the 12 tribes of Israel, and so their genealogy is very important. However, the chronicler does not go in birth order. Judah is listed first. This is the tribe from which Christ would come from. This genealogy goes from chapter 2, verse 3 to chapter 4, verse 23. Simeon is listed second. His genealogy goes from chapter 4, verse 24 to chapter 4, verse 43, probably because of its close association of these two tribes. If you remember when Joshua was dividing up the land, Simeon received inheritance inside the tribal allotment of Judah. So they're really connected together. Reuben is listed third in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Gad is fourth in chapter 5, 11 to 17. The Transjordan tribes, including the half the tribe of Manasseh, is in 518 to verse 26 of chapter 5. Now, Levi is next, and all of chapter 6 is dedicated to his descendants. Now, this is interesting. The first half of chapter 6 concerns the line of the high priests. The second half of chapter 6 was on Levi's sons. The third part of chapter 6 is on the court musicians. These are the ones that David set up and organized, a Levitical musical guild of sorts for worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And the final part of chapter 6 is on the Levitical towns. This list parallels Joshua 21 verses 5 to 39. These towns, as we noted earlier in our podcast, were allotted to the Levites, and they were important to the life and well-being of the whole nation. Issachar follows in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Benjamin shows up next in chapter 7, verses 6 through 12. Naphtali is only given one verse, chapter 7, verse 13. Manasseh is next, chapter 7, verses 14 to 19. Ephraim follows in chapter 7, verses 20 to 29. And Asher is in chapter 7, verses 30 to 40. Now, moving out of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Benjamin is included a second time and remains the focus for the rest of the chapter. The chronicler gives us gives Benjamin a lot of attention. In fact, in his mind, Benjamin is part of the southern kingdom. Now, I've mentioned this before, but when the kingdom gets divided, as we have already discussed this, it's divided into the north and the south. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Those two tribes in the south have always been Judah and Benjamin. Now, because Judah is the focus of the southern kingdom, because it's from where the line of Christ would come from, from descendants of David, Benjamin is rarely discussed, but they're always part of it. In fact, as you've probably figured out when reading through the story of the kings in your Bibles, your Bible headings will likely say kings of Israel and kings of Judah. The kings of Israel are the ten tribes from the north, and the kings of Judah are the two tribes from the south. So that's how it looks in some Bible translations. Now in chapter 9, we have a selective list of the people that return from exile to the land of Israel. These were mainly people from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, also priests, Levites, porters, or caretakers, you might say, singers, and other temple servants. The last half of chapter 9 introduces us to the family of Saul, which was mentioned as an element within Benjamin's genealogy back in chapter 8. Now, as a way of introducing Saul's reign as Israel's first king, the chronicler repeats the names of the principal ancestors and descendants of Saul. Now, don't turn me off just yet. Please listen closely. That concludes the Bible reading 
for this week. And you can, again, always send questions to BibleReading at lnbc.org. Now, in lieu of the importance of genealogies, I have recorded, or am going to record at this time, an additional podcast entitled Tracing Jesus in Chronicles. And this is what I did. I went through chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Chronicles, those genealogies, with a pencil, and I circled all the names in the line of Christ, from Adam as it goes to Zerubbabel. Because to me, that's the larger picture and focus. So if you're interested in doing this and have a moment, either now or later, to grab a pen, a pencil, or a highlighter, listen to the special podcast. It'll be a separate podcast. And follow along with me as we trace the line of Christ. I will also show you how both Mary and Joseph's line, separate lines, can be traced back to the line of David. Yes, that's right. Both Joseph and Mary were from the tribe of Judah and were from the tribe, excuse me, from the line of David. So look for that special podcast. It'll be a separate podcast, and I will include the link to it in the email. So thanks for listening. Send any questions you might have to Bible reading at lmbc.org. Don't forget about that special podcast, and I will talk with you all next week.